Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Stand with us this morning across this place one more time. We just lift our hands and thank Him for His presence. Jesus, You're here in this place this morning. Your Spirit is walking among us here today, Lord. And we thank You that You take the time to to visit us and to move upon us, Lord. And we're thankful for that this morning. Amen. John chapter 6. Peggy, thank you so much for coming this morning. That was beautiful and that was anointed. Thank you so much. Thank you for leading us into the presence of the Lord. That keyboard sits in my house. I didn't know it could make those sounds. John chapter 6. I'm reading several verses. It's, it's a lengthy reading, uh, but I, I think we have to to capture what's going on here. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. And we're jumping in the middle of a story where Jesus just feeds 5,000 people with uh, one boy's lunch. Uh, He's teaching thousands of people and he multiplies the fishes and the loaves. And after that, he, the story is where he walks on the water and he, he escapes to the other side and they, they know it doesn't add up. We saw the disciples go away, but you weren't in the boat and there's only one boat. How did you get to the other side? And the answer is he walked across on water. So that's the context of the story. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they had found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Lord, You spoke these words 2,000 years ago, and they are as relevant and true and life-changing today as ever. And we thank them, for, thank You for them. Your Spirit is here. Your Word is already anointed. Touch us to receive Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. The story that I did not read and start out with was the story of Jesus multiplying the fishes and the loaves to feed the 5,000 hungry people that were there that day to hear Him speak. We may be tempted to call this a supernatural act, but there was nothing supernatural about it. It's natural for Jesus to do things like this. The miracle of the loaves and the fishes were was pointing towards a much greater truth later on in the chapter. So when Jesus talks about being the bread of life, which is the center of the sermon this morning, that Jesus is the bread of life, He's playing off of what He just did, that the miracle, at least to those people, was a miracle, that He was able to take one boy's sack lunch and feed thousands of people. But it's not a big thing for Jesus to do what He did. I follow a marketing guru named Seth Godin, and he often says, people like us do things like this. And people like Jesus, meaning just Jesus, this is nothing for him to do something so miraculous. This is a long chapter, chapter 6, and we're, we're working our way through John. Chapter 6, there are 71 verses, and it's very dense. The words of Jesus are very dense, and there are more ideas and more glorious truths here that can be covered in one sermon. I looked at this chapter, and I could see easily five sermons that could be brought out of this chapter. So when I was looking at this chapter 6, I saw five parts to the chapter. Number one, there is the feeding of the 5,000. The second part, it moves to the story about Jesus walking on the water. And then there is this really long discourse that's most of John 6, and it starts in Capernaum, and a crowd is following him, and they ask him, Rabbi, why did you come here? But at the end of the discourse, John says these things he said in the synagogue. So somewhere in the middle of this discourse it breaks, and we can probably tell where it breaks, where the conversation moves to the general public and moves to the synagogue. But it all flows in John 6 as one conversation. And the fifth part of that is in verse 60, where it is his disciples' response. After he's done talking to the crowd and done talking to the Jewish leaders, now it's his followers. And it's a response to their question. And they said, after he said everything that he said, his followers said, Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can accept this? And so I'm leaving out this morning in John 6 much more than what is here. I would encourage and hope and pray that you would take the time on your own to read this chapter carefully and see all the other glorious truths that are there. And so when we preach a sermon like this, we're faced with two choices. One, we can work through each verse by verse. Uh, we would be here until tomorrow if we tried to do that. Uh, or we can draw out some main points from the text. So I've chosen to do the latter and to draw out some main points from John 6. And they all start with Jesus. Number one... Jesus gives eternal life to those who believe. Number two, Jesus, and not His gifts, but Jesus is all-satisfying. 
Number three, Jesus' demands of radical relationship are actually a gift to us. His radical demands are one of His greatest gifts to us. Jesus gives eternal life to those who believe. Now, if you've been here for some time and, and heard some of the series that we're working through on John, I hope you've picked up on the fact that John loves in his gospel to talk about how Jesus connects belief in Him with eternal life. Four times in this discourse alone, Jesus talks about eternal life. Verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on Him the Father has set His seal. Now there is a very, in, in John, there is a very high view of who Jesus Christ is. All four Gospels tell how Jesus is the Son of God and they reveal His identity as the Son of God and fully divine as God. But the view is particularly high in John. John has the highest possible view, what we would call Christology, the highest possible Christology that Jesus is the Son of God and He is fully God. He starts this in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, distinction, and the Word was God, unity. He starts from the very beginning because he talks about how the Word was made manifest in flesh and dwelt among us. That this man walking among us, Jesus Christ, is not semi-divine as over the centuries there, this has been taught. Jesus is semi-divine. He's kind of like God. He's the Son of God, but He's not fully divine. Or the idea that He was born as a normal human being and at His baptism at, He was anointed and became divine. These are ideas that we've fought for 2,000 years. John sets the bar as high as possible in his gospel and says, Jesus is God. Verse 40, this is the will of my Father. It's the second time Jesus talks about eternal life. That everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day, speaking of the resurrection. You want to be in the will of God. You seek the will of God. How many times have... Have I counseled people or talked with people that have said, Oh, if I just knew what the will of God was for my life. Jesus says right here, this is the will of God, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him has eternal life. That's God's will. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John just keeps on showing how Jesus is connecting belief with eternal life. And then Jesus says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Eat that bread and you die. Eat this bread and you will live forever. Whoever, in verse 54, feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on that last day. The masses of people that day missed the real message just like the masses of people today missed the real message. Jesus is the bread of life. And that is a radical claim because it will cause you to either crown Him or crucify Him, but you cannot ignore His radical claims. His body and His blood are our life. Verse 40, I will raise Him up on the last day. Who will you raise up, Jesus? Those who believe. I'll be preaching in John 8 here in the next month or so when we get to John 8. I will be preaching a sermon, you will never see death. The believer never sees death. But we don't have to wait until John 8 to see this because Jesus says, eat this bread and you will never die. John cannot be any clearer about the connection between belief and eternal life. That day is coming 
where we are going to enjoy what he's talking about, that life eternal. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain or sickness or death. That day is coming where we will never suffer again. For now there is pain and there is sorrow and there is malevolence in the world and there is evil. And it's foolish to bury our heads in the sand and say, well, it either doesn't exist, A, or B, as the child of God, I am untouched by that. The realities of life tell us that we're not untouched by that. We live in a real world and we will suffer and we will deal with the malevolence that is in this world. There is evil. There are men who choose to send missiles into buildings, sheltering innocent people and children. I can't wrap my head around that, but that happens today. And without the grace of God, that could be me making decisions like that. I'm not above those sorts of things. I have the same innate carnality and evil that dwells within my default nature. There is no guarantee that we will escape suffering in this life. Suffering is part of what it means to be human, to exist, to live in this world. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Like My Lord and Savior told me, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That is our hope. We can have hope because greater is He that is within me than he that is within the world. Number two, Jesus and not His gifts are all satisfying. The chapter starts with Jesus feeding thousands of people with one boy's lunch. And it's not like 5,000 people forgot to bring food that day. It's also, I was reading the text yesterday, and the text doesn't say that that boy was the only person there that had brought food. 5,000 people, probably somebody else there had some food, uh, but there certainly was not enough food to feed everybody. And so Philip comes and says, there's a lad here who has uh, five loaves and two fishes, and, uh, but what is that among so many? And even if we had 200 denarii, I did the conversion last night at that time. He's saying roughly $15,000. Even if we had $15,000, uh, what would that be to, to try to feed this, this many people? Uh, it's not like they forgot to plan ahead for food. It's how they lived life. We, we take for granted that we can walk out of here and hit restaurants all around us or food in our pantry. But those people, to get up every day, you had to be intentional about just living. And they had followed Jesus for all that He was doing. They followed Him for the signs. And now Jesus looks at them and says, how are we going to feed them? It's how they live life. They expected to go home hungry. And now the people are following Him across after He feeds them because He fed them. This guy can take a one boy's lunch and solve world hunger. If he can do this, world hunger, we never have to worry about going hungry again. You would probably follow a guy like that. If you didn't know where your next meal was coming from and there was a guy that could pull off this, you would go and follow him and see what else he could do for you. They followed him because he can give them bread. There were, at that time, ancient Jewish writings that said that they had expected, now this was not scripture, but there's a lot of, there are more Jewish writings at the time of Jesus and more Jewish writings today that exist that are not Bible than are Bible. So in the close of the Old Testament, what we call Second Temple Judaism, they started, the, the rabbis started writing massive volumes of works. And they don't equate those to the level of Scripture, but they are authoritative. And the Jewish literature said that they expected the Messiah 
to renew the miracle of the manna of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in the wilderness, when the people of God were hungry, it would rain down manna, which was the actual definition of manna is what is it. That's, the, that's what the word means, what is it. We don't know what it was. They said it was white like coriander seed. Whatever it was, it's what fed the people of God in the wilderness or they would have started, starved to death. And it rained down from heaven. The manna came down and fed the people of God. So they, they were given bread every day from God. And the Jewish writings said that the Messiah that was promised would renew the miracle to bring bread to them, to feed them. And what does Jesus do? He just feeds them with bread. And so they look at Him and He's the Messiah. He must be the one. He's checking this box that He's going to feed us with bread. And, and He does this. He provides food. But they are so earthbound in their thinking that they cannot see past the temporary. The here and now is blocking their vision to something infinitely greater. God gave His people bread from heaven to eat in the Old Testament. The Jews were wanting God to do this again, and He is. He's giving them bread from heaven to eat. And this time it's not manna, it's the person of Jesus Christ. They can't see that. They're looking for physical bread, and Jesus is saying, No, I'm the bread that God gives. I am the bread of life. He is the true bread from heaven. We must lift up our eyes from the temporary, from the houses and the cars and the bills and ball games and hobbies and ambitions and dreams that are bound to this life only. We must lift up our eyes and see King Jesus for who He is, the eternal and sovereign and all-satisfying Lord of our lives. About a month ago we went through John 4 and the woman at the well. Jesus says, if you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. The men in the synagogue in John 6 eat this bread and you'll never die and you'll never desire for anything else. Jesus is all satisfying. Not His gifts, not what He can do for us, not what the benefits that we can get if we walk with Him. The person of Christ Himself is all satisfying. We live to exalt, not exalt, but exalt with a U, to revel in Him, to get our joy and our satisfaction, to rejoice in Him. That's why we exist, to make much of the name of Jesus Christ. Now we in, the, in certain faith traditions, we don't use catechisms often. We should, we don't. Uh, catechisms are not a Catholic thing. The Catholic Church uses them a lot. It's core to what they do, but it is not a Catholic thing to use a catechism. Catechisms have a long and rich history in the Protestant Church. So what a catechism is, it's a, it's a short, not always short, but it's a summary of the Christian faith. And it's often done in question and answer form. So this person would ask a question and somebody else would recite it. And people would memorize those so they could have a summation of their Christian faith. One of the most famous catechisms is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's several hundred years old. It's probably the most well-known catechism in the Protestant church. And it starts off with the first question, what is the chief end of man? And then it answers, it's a call and response. A catechism is a call and response. So the call is, what is the chief end of man? The response is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So most people, uh, especially in certain Protestant circles, would know this by heart. What is the, if you were to ask him, what is the chief end of man? They wouldn't say, 
Well, it's no, they would answer it with these exact words. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So when I picked up the book 10 years ago called Desiring God and uh, written by John Piper and read it and heard his phrase for the first time, Christian hedonism, uh, I was hooked. One, because it's provocative because hedonism is usually used in a, a secular, sensual way. They're, they're hedonists. That means that they live to enjoy the pleasures of life in the flesh. And he was arguing we should all be Christian hedonists. We should find our pleasure and our satisfaction and our enjoyment in God. And the summary of that statement that he wrote was that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. And it was one of the most stunning ideas I ever encountered and it changed my life. The idea that my Christianity can be so much more than a legalistic, rules-based, transactional relationship, but rather I can enjoy God and He wants me to enjoy Him. He wants me to find my joy and my pleasure and my satisfaction. Why? Because it's how we're wired. We're wired to try to find something in life that satisfies us. We all want to be happy. We, we pursue happiness. So why not pursue it in the things of God? And then God says, you're, you're this happy in me, I want you to be even happier. You can't revel, you can't exult enough in God. He wants you to find your satisfaction in Him. And that the more I enjoy God and the more I am satisfied in Him, the more He is glorified. He gets glory when I find my satisfaction in Him. So what Piper did was he changed one word in the Westminster Catechism. The answer says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Piper changed one word and he said, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That I glorify Him by enjoying Him. It's a minor twist with a radical difference. That's the biblical idea of Jesus. He is all satisfying Him. Christ is all satisfying. The false gospel is a prosperity gospel is that what Jesus can give you is all satisfying. Become a Christian and watch your bank account grow. That's a damnable gospel. The only way people can believe that and, and sit in a church is if that church does not declare the whole counsel of God and does not expound on the Scripture. Send me your seed money. I, I have connections, like one degree connections to one of the largest televangelists in the world. The man that I'm told that when they want to raise money, this is the man that they would call and say, come raise money for us. Because he could get on TV, he could get a widow's last nickel on her credit card. Um, I would not want to stand in his shoes on Judgment Day. It's a damnable gospel. The only way that people can believe that is to not hear the whole counsel of God and not hear the scriptures expounded. The problem with the prosperity gospel is that even if it were true, it would still not be satisfying. So for the sake of argument, God does give you all the material blessings that you want in response to your faith. Then He's still giving you something that can't satisfy you. He's not even being good to you because none of that satisfies you. And I'm not saying that we take a vow of poverty. I told a man Friday, I said, it takes a lot of money to live. I said, not to live just well, just to live in this life. It takes, a, it takes a regular solid income just to survive, especially around here. So I'm not living in a bubble. We're facing inflation and higher gas prices and higher groceries, and these are the realities of life. I'm not minimizing those things. 
I deal with them like you deal with them. What I am saying is, don't try to get your satisfaction from anything in this life. If you try to get your satisfaction in those things, it will fail you. I am a dying man this morning. I, I'm dying. I have a clock above my head that's counting down backwards. I just can't see what's on it. I'm a dying man preaching to dying people. The eternal things of life, the spiritual things, the godly things of life are what matter. Jesus did not come to fulfill your desires. He came so that you might believe in Him and be transformed so that Christ and Christ alone satisfies your longings. Jesus came to change our desires so that our desires are transformed as we walk with Him so that we don't seek Him for His treasure but so that He is our treasure. And number three, Jesus' demands of radical relationship are a gift to us. A good test of our faith is asking ourselves the question, does the life we lead with Christ today resemble eating His flesh and drinking His blood? Because that's what He said we should do. We know that Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He is not promoting cannibalism, but He is using radical language to communicate a radical idea. Don Carson writes, he says, indeed, we are more familiar with this kind of eating metaphor than we may realize. We devour books, we drink in lectures, we swallow stories, we ruminate on ideas, we chew over a matter, we eat our own words. Doting grandparents declare that they could just eat up their grandchildren. Carson says we're, we're pretty familiar with this kind of language. Verse 40 and verse 54 are very similar. In verse 40, Jesus says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him has eternal life. So He's equating belief with eternal life in verse 40. And then down here in verse 54, He says, Whosoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So belief, eternal life, eating my flesh, drinking my blood, eternal life. The only main difference between these verses is that one speaks of eating Jesus' flesh and the other speaks of looking at Christ and believing in Him. One is a metaphor, the other is a reality that the metaphor is referring to. In other words, the belief is what the eating the flesh and drinking the blood is. This is not a new idea. 1,700 years ago, Augustine, who is... You have to stack rank influential people in Christianity. Augustine comes in, in the top five, probably in the top three most influential people in Christianity. He lived in the second, third century. But Augustine wrote of these verses, Believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten. But don't believe in Jesus the same way that you believe in yourself or that you believe in your favorite sports team. Believe in Jesus in a way that can be described that you have ate His flesh and drank His blood. The scandal is not that Jesus talks like a cannibal. The scandal is that He is pointing to a cross that will rip His flesh apart and drain His blood onto the ground, all while hanging naked on a cross, shamed before the world. Believe in that Jesus. Believe in Him with that kind of intensity. And then belief, biblical belief, always produces behavior. And how then shall we live in light of all of this? 
That's not an easy question to answer. Had dinner with friends last night. The man is a preacher and he was asking me what I was preaching today and I told him and I said, these are the three main points. And I said, then there's the question, how shall we live in light of all this? And he said, well, he said, what does the practical application of eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus, what is the practical application of that? I said, I, I said that's a hard question to answer. I said, I, I can't just stack rank one, two, three, four. This is what we should do. I said, all I know is that my answer to that of Jesus' demands on us is His greatest gift to us. The fact that He is telling us, you need to come eat my body and drink my blood, and that is the level of intensity that you need to believe in me. What He's doing, He's reflecting the, the command the, in Deuteronomy 6 to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, your soul. To love Him with everything is not a burden. That is a delight to me, to love Him. I can, I can make my decisions in life using through the lens of, is this a decision that would, could be described as me believing in Jesus in eating His flesh and drinking His blood? And I close with this, and I invite Peggy back to the music. If you think that's a hard saying, you're in good company. Because in John 6, verse 60, after Jesus' disciples who walked with Him, who know Him, after they hear Him saying all of these things, they said to Him, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Lord, you've just, you've just put something out there. You've just raised the level of following you to something that, that we're not sure what to do with that. That is a hard thing that you're saying. So Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, He did not try to say, well, what I really meant, guys, is this. No, He says to them, do you take offense in this? Does this offend you that I just said this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words that the followers of Jesus said were hard were the same words that Jesus said are spirit and life. You say they're hard words, I say to you, Jesus says, it's what's going to save you. Why I am an expository preacher and not someone telling funny stories or making jokes in the pulpit or spending the bulk of my time up here trying to connect the dots in Scripture to tell you how you can have a better life or better marriage or be more effective on the job. It's because His words and not mine are spirit and life. And if you get a hold of the Word of God, it will organically transform your life and your relationships. So verse 66, after this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. There were people that day because of what He said that turned around and walked away from Jesus. And I don't see him chasing them down and following them and saying, Hey guys, I think you misunderstood me. Let me clarify that. He says, Does that offend you? And after they walk away, he turns around to the twelve and he says, Do you want to go away as well? I've heard it said that he said it 
sarcastically, are you going to go too? I've heard it said that he said it sorrowfully. Are you guys going too? I don't know. The tone is not conveyed in the scripture. I don't know exactly. I think saying either one of those is probably an extreme. I think it's just a question, an honest question that he asked him. We don't know the tone, but he turns around and says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter, Peter gets it. Peter so gets it. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words, and here's the phrase, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus just finished talking about eternal life four or five times in the discourse. And Peter says, I think Peter thought those words were hard too, but I don't care how hard your words are, Jesus, where else are we going to go? No matter how hard your words are, where are we going to go? Because you're the one that has the words to eternal life. And then he recognizes you are the Holy One of God. It's the second time in the Gospels that Peter recognizes who Jesus is. Some say you're Elijah, some say you're uh, the prophet, but uh, you know, thou art the Christ. Peter sees it. You are the Holy One of God. He gets it. That's going to be the difference on whether you make it or not. Because every single one of us, I know we have a mix here of, and I'm so thankful that we do have a mix of people who are new to faith and people who have walked with God for a long time. And that's wonderful. That's how a church should be. But every single one of us are going to hit the dip. We all hit the dip where we just, you feel like God's a million miles away. You wake up on Sunday morning, you don't feel like going to church. I wake up on Sunday mornings a lot not feeling like getting up and going to church. Um, you don't always feel like doing this, right? Uh, but where else am I going to go to hear the words of eternal life? Not my words. Again, it's why I'm an expository preacher. I want you to hear His words. I want to be an expository preacher to the point that people accuse me of plagiarizing the biblical text. I want to be a Bible preacher. I want you to hear the words of God. So what are you going to do with Jesus' words? Will you walk away or will you be like Peter and say, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words to eternal life. Stand with me this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are blessed beyond measure that we have the ability to gather together, to come together and pray together just as we gathered together at the beginning and laid hands on Tracy to pray for her healing and anointed her with oil. It's a privilege to come together and just be able to do that. And then to be able to hear your word spoken, to read what you said 2,000 years ago, glorious truths, truths that we will ponder throughout the day and throughout the week, that you are the bread of life and that we are invited to partake of you to that extent. And then, Lord, to be able to feel your spirit, to know your spirit is here among us, that same spirit of Christ that was poured out 2,000 years ago, started the church age and continues even till today. The Spirit that dwells in us, the Spirit that moves among us, that comforts us, that touches us, that heals us, that walks with us, that we know that Jesus is not just away somewhere, but that you, Christ, dwell within our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we are, above all, most blessed and privileged for that today.
Lord. So we thank you today and we honor you and we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close